This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So I'm excited to welcome you here to this symposium, an opportunity for public reflection on a document that I, along with many others, have been waiting for since it became clear that Pope Francis was going to write it. In fact, some... Uh, apparently the day he was elected Pope, um, and one of the reasons that he picked uh, Francis as his name had to do with his concern about the environment. And so I think right from the very beginning of his uh, time as Pope, he thought it important to write on this. So I've been excited about this. As one who's been active in the environmental justice movement for the last 15 years, um, it's become clear to me that the planet's climate is changing and that that change is impacting living things on this planet and that we human beings are in part, if not in whole, responsible for that change. So, however, even though that's what I've come to believe, not because I just felt like it, but from what I've studied and read, I've come to believe that, um, I find myself, when I'm talking to my neighbor, talking to a sibling, sometimes talking to my students, um, there are other more pressing things than what's happening to the climate happening. And they're more pressing on people's lives. And so the, the environment and climate change and its impact gets pushed to the side uh, for most people's everyday concerns. What's hopeful for me is that this encyclical places the issue of the environment and our responsibility for it front and center. Pope Francis has the world's ear unlike any other contemporary world leader. His invitation to action on behalf of the earth and the poor of earth perhaps can move the challenges of climate change to the front of the agenda for policymakers and for our neighbors. So I'm hopeful. Tonight, I've asked my colleagues from various disciplines to offer us their first impressions of the document. I hope we'll have future conversations to develop some of the ideas that you hear tonight more deeply and to uh, offer deeper analyses of what's going on in the document and the world around us perhaps in response to the document. But we thought it would be important to just have this initial event to give you a taste of what might be available for further research and conversation in the encyclical. So what I'd like to do is, first of all, I have to uh, let everybody know that this event was sponsored by lots of different organizations across the campus. Uh, including by the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, uh, the Office of, Office of Mission and Ministry, um, the Office of Sustainability, as well as the various academic departments that are listed there. So I thank everyone for helping us get the word out and for being excited about bringing uh, this event off. So what I'd like to do is introduce each of them in order of their presentations, and then I've asked each of them to talk to us for maybe seven or eight minutes. Um, and my job is to make sure that they do that so there's a big gong behind the, behind the screen. So if you hear that, that means you have to help me get them off. Uh, they're going to come up here and speak to use the microphone. Um, and then when they're done, we're going to open up for questions, comments, 
Um, I will moderate that, and then you could direct a question or comment to an individual person, or it could be a general one, and they could take turns, whoever wants to answer it. Then at the end, I'm going to, about 7.15 or so, there's a couple of announcements that we like to make about activities that could be follow-ups if you get interested in this. Um, and then um, if the four, the five of us will stick around if people want to continue conversation. But that will be the official end of the event. Okay? Now I have to immediately point out that one of our uh, panelists called me today and she's ill. So I'm very aware that there's all men up here, which wasn't my intention because I invited a woman to be on the panel who's an expert in environmental ethics, but unfortunately she's ill. So she sends her regrets um, and hopes to be involved in future events. So our first um, panelist is Keith Henderson, a professor in the Department of Geography and the Environment. Then we'll hear from Mark Graham, professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies. Then from Christopher Kilby, a, a professor in the Department of Economics, and finally, from Professor Daniel Mark from Political Science. So without further ado, we'll start with Keith. Okay, thank you very much, it's a pleasure to be here. So we were asked to uh, provide our first impressions of this encyclical, and as a geographer and the sort of scientist on the panel here, I'll have to admit that my first impression is really what the document is not. Um, leading up to the release of the document, I was led to believe that the document was going to be the Pope's statement on climate change, and the critiques of that were what business does the Pope have discussing science, the Pope isn't a scientist, um, should the church be taking a position on science, and so I was expecting a document that went into detail on levels of greenhouse gas emissions and radiation budgets and uh, climate trend, temperature trends, etc. In reality, um, the direct discussion of the science of climate change takes up four of the 246 paragraphs in the document. And in fact, the, the, the overview of the science is one chapter. It's an important chapter. It's the basis of the whole document. It's the assumption that the environment is changing. And I think the science of that is covered in a very fair and measured way, um, acknowledging where there are disagreements, but also strongly pointing out that the preponderance of evidence is that the environment is changing. Um, but then leads from that into a much more, a much richer document on what do we do about it? And what is the moral and, and spiritual responsibilities we have as a people to live with and in the world around us? So the, the jumping off point is the science, but um, the, the, it's a much richer document than that. Having said that, um, I want to get to my first impression. That my, my first impression as a geographer is just a word of caution in using the interchanging the words environmental change and climate change. Um, a lot of times this, this encyclical is held up as the climate change document, and even this afternoon there was a, a, an event um, at the National Press Club where it was being talked about as the climate change document. But climate change is one of many environmental changes that are taking place. There's as much in this document about waste and pollution, about scant water, decreasing water resources, about the loss of green space and biodiversity, um, all kinds of environmental changes, the air, the water, life, soils, they're all being driven by human choices and human decisions. And I worry a little bit that if we 
refer to it only as climate change. Climate change has become so politicized uh, with the believers and the non-believers that it might paralyze our discussion a little bit where we have a lot of common ground and a lot of agreement on the kinds of environmental changes that are underway. Um, climate change underlies and influences a lot of them, but really this encyclical treats a, a much broader suite of environmental changes than just simply climate change. It certainly agree, the science certainly agrees with um, scientists such as those put together the, the interpanel, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, I think the consensus on all these changes is that change is underway. Change is, ha, has been seen in many aspects of the physical environment. It's likely to continue for centuries. And that the longer we wait to do something about it, the larger and more severe those changes are going to be. So the question then really becomes, what do we as a society choose to do about those changes now and the increasing rate of intensification of those changes? And really, response can come in one of three ways. We can try to prevent that change from happening in the first place. We can attempt to mitigate the uh, impacts of that change or we can wait and adapt to those changes when they occur. Um, I would argue that prevention may not be entirely possible at this point. Most scenarios of future climate change and other changes um, show some sort of inevitable increase in human impacts, regardless of how many steps we take. And the longer we wait, the worse it gets. So that at least for our generation, we are going to be living through an era of environmental changes that we're going to have to deal with. There are things we can do to perhaps reduce those changes, but probably not prevent them outright. The adaptation strategy, I would argue, and we'll hear later about that, has many issues of environmental justice. Um, the assumption that we could use our technology and our innovation to adjust to any changes when they occur might be valid in a country like the United States with lots of uh, uh, labor, education, financial capital to throw at the problems. But in most of the developing world and the poorest among us um, would then be left to face with all the, uh, all the consequences. So I, th I, would, I think that most of this encyclical really concerns the middle ground, concerns mitigation. What can we do to try to reduce the severity of any environmental changes and to prepare ourselves so that any impact of those changes is as small as possible? And as a geographer, um, a lot of the encyclical hits home with me. First, because it, its mitigation discussions constantly link the human and environment together. This is not a problem that can separate, be separated into individual disciplines. It's not strictly an environmental problem. It's not strictly a human problem. As the Pope points out in, in all, many numbers, um, any attempt to reduce and separate into separ is a form of ignorance. And if, to address environmental problems, we also have to address the kinds of social problems that face us. And the two have to work hand in hand. Um, it's, it's a, it involves a, it's a holistic problem and, re, and it requires holistic solutions. Um, the second thing that, that impression I'm left with is that in, geography matters in a very real sense. And some of the variables that, that geographers study come through throughout the document. Um, let me put three up, examples up here. The idea that place matters. Every individual place on the globe has its unique characteristics, its, its own cultures, its own history, its own unique environments. And those situations on the ground are important. There is no one-size-fits-all solution. And there's no, going to be no technological 
panacea that cures environmental problems around the world. We need to work with local cultures, local groups, local knowledge, value what they have to offer, and not assume that our own solutions are going to work everywhere. And we need to adapt certain priorities, but adapt them to local situations. Secondly, space matters. There are patterns. There are going to be winners and losers. Environmental changes are not going to occur equally throughout the planet, nor is vulnerability equal throughout the planet. And while countries like the United States may be responsible for most of the emissions of greenhouse gases, many of the biggest impacts are going to be felt in parts of the world that still rely on primary industries, on extraction of uh, for things like agriculture or fisheries, where um, we need to balance the, the um, people who are producing the problem and those that are uh, feeling the problem. What, where are the, the, the problems going to be the largest? What is their geographic pattern? And finally, scale matters. Um, solutions are going to be local, they're going to be regional, they're going to be national, and they're going to be international, global in scope. And our appreciation and our involvement with the environment extends everywhere from our own personal backyards, the neighborhoods of our cities that our people live in, and the way in which they interact with the world around them, our national policies, and our global agreements. And all of them, uh, at all scales, we need to come up with ways of incorporating the value of the environment into the decisions that we make. That goes hand in hand with a lot of current scientific agreement that, again, no, no solution is by itself is going to be sufficient. We need to change the way we look at the environment, change the way we live, the, the values we have, the priorities we have to create more sustainable livelihoods at all different scales. So finally, as I left the document, I thought this number sort of summed up my first impression best. The, the encyclical calls us to consider what kind of world do we want to leave for those who come after us. Not just a physical world, not just the trees, the air, the water, the land, but what kind of world view do we want to leave behind? How do we want people to look at the environment, to consider our place within the environment, the um, value it has in our lives, and how does that world view shape the impact we have on it? So thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Mark Graham. I'm from the Theology and Religious Studies Department. And I have an allergy to your so I'm going to pace. Can't hear me, just let me know, okay? Um, I, I want to approach this from the perspective of not only a theologian, but an ethicist. And ask the question about, in the end, is Francis actually delivered the good ethically, okay? Here, here's my take on the environmental situation today. We were, it's, it's almost as if we're standing on a train track, okay? We've got two. Massive trains barreling down right at us. One is called global climate change, um, which poses a pernicious threat to major delivery systems of food, fresh water, so on and so forth. Okay? Um, and because of global climate change, what we really need to be doing in terms of our basic delivery systems is creating a safety buffer zone where we can essentially allow for human folly to screw things up on a consistent basis, yet we're still okay. Okay. Um, I was reading a document uh, produced by the United Nations about three or four months ago, and then this particular council recommends that in order to feed the two to three point two two to three billion people that are going to be added to planet Earth this particular century, we need to increase grain production by seventy percent. Okay, we've already been through the Green Revolution and the post World War II period, where we essentially almost doubled grain production in a matter of twenty five to thirty years. 
And now we're thinking about developing better agriculture to increase by 70%. It's almost wishful thinking to, to think about such numbers, okay? So the one trend that's threatening to run right over the top of us is global climate change. The other, as I've alluded to already, is overpopulation and adding two to three billion people to planet Earth, which is going to create so much stress, it's going to be almost unimaginable, okay? So what we need to be doing, I'm absolutely convinced right now, if we want to avoid the apocalyptic doomsday scenario, the number of feedback loops starting to get beyond human control is to put a curb on our emissions of greenhouse gases right now. At least if we want to avoid the cataclysmic apocalyptic scenario of people starving because they don't have enough food to eat. Okay? All right. So, given that fact, I would expect Pope Francis to take a very prophetic stance, okay? And in his heart of hearts, I'm absolutely convinced that Pope Francis wants to be a prophet. One of the first things he did was inaugurate a jubilee year, which in Luke's gospel is the first act of Jesus, right? Who is coming to inaugurate the kingdom of God, he proclaims jubilee, okay? Remitting debt, freeing slaves, radical social movements designed to alleviate long-term intractable poverty, okay? Um, so Pope Francis, I think, wants to be a prophet. Um, but to a certain extent, I wish he would have called me before he wrote this document, because I would have helped him out to be a little bit more prophetic, okay? Um, I want to be as generous as possible to Pope Francis. And I, 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 I would say that in terms of the document today, it represents the first time in the history of the Catholic Church where environmentalism is dealt with directly and in a very sustained way, okay? So Pat, Pat, Pat Francis is on the back for that. Um, he does a wonderful job of putting it on the agenda, okay? I also think that it's... I also think that it's impossible today to consider oneself a Catholic with all, without also considering oneself green in some way, shape, and form, okay? So, so that, that means that all these years of me hugging trees have been for naught. Finally, some pope is validating my, my agreements, okay? Um, here's my critique of Laudato Si. Um, number one, it suffers from an identity confusion. The document really doesn't know what it is, where it wants to go, and how to get there in many different ways even though Francis's prophetic tendencies are pretty pronounced, okay? Um, and I say that because the document is addressed to all people of goodwill, but he uses the language of Catholicism and Christianity, okay? He wants to essentially embrace a prophetic tone um, and denounce this rapacious consumerism. He uses very sharp language. He talks about the filth that we're turning planet Earth into. He has a very sharp tongue in this document, while at the same time, he's also working within the tradition of Catholic social thought, which is a measure of reason and has certain concepts and terminology um, that it works with, but not oftentimes sits very easily with the more prophetic taste. Okay? Um, thirdly, when I think about this document, in many ways it kind of reads like a seminary course. Okay? It talks a, little, a lot about the theology of creation, what God is doing, how humans are mucking it up. It's a story that we've heard before, but it's now getting reversed in a particularly contemporary narrative. Um, versus, in many ways, I, I would have appreciated more of a blueprint for action. Okay? And this is going to be one of my sustained critiques of Laudato C. It doesn't know what kind of a document it wants to be. And therefore, I think what he does is Francis gets a few things right, but he gets a lot of things wrong, okay? What's he get right? 
Number one, he's, he's very, he has very critical awareness of how technology is deeply implicated in not only global climate change, but also a lot of other environmental things. We in the United States were almost like kids on Christmas morning going down to open up our new technological gadgets and we're going to draw the family and they're going to bring satisfaction, so on and so forth. Uh, Francis has a certain degree of technophobia to it. Um, and, and I think his technophobia is right on target. I cannot think of any major negative environmental issue in which technology is not deeply implicated. Okay? So I think what Francis does is he makes us think critically about technology. The technologies we use, we become dependent upon. Okay? Um, number two, he launches into, in my mind, a, a good critique of our rapacious consumerism in first world Western industrialized countries. Um, the bottom line is we are, if we take global climate change, for example, uh, in the United States we comprise roughly 4% of the world's population, yet each year we're responsible for approximately 25% of all greenhouse gases emitted into the atmosphere. This gets into the, the justice issue that the good professor was talking about earlier, right? When we're disproportionately responsible for something that's going to harm other people, especially the poorest of the poor worldwide, it becomes a major issue of justice, okay? So our, our levels of consumption are open to moral critique, at least in my mind, okay? Um, I actually thought that Francis got right the language of love that appears in his document, um, where he talks about Franciscan spirituality, about awe and wonder, about fraternity and beauty with the natural world. If he can actually pull off something akin to um, a mental conversion, whereby we think of the natural sphere not as a repository of resources to satisfy human desires, but as an ongoing manifestation revelation from God, perhaps that, perhaps that new mentality would cause us to think differently about the products we consume, the way in which we interact with each other and nature, okay? So, Francis gets many things right. He should be applauded for that. My bones of contention, and it's principally functioning as an ethicist where I start critiquing Francis, only because when I think about the specific issues he takes up, for example, in one area he takes up GMO, genetically modified organisms, which is quite a robust debate both in the United States as well as in the European Union. Um, he talks about GMOs for a couple paragraphs, and Lee, in the end, leaves the discussion relative and open-ended, okay? Francis has this annoying habit of throwing out major ethical or theological concepts, such as the common good, intergenerational justice, um, the common plan, the precautionary principle, right? Books have been written about each one of these, and to a certain extent, he's right on target. What he's trying to do is to sink his ethical teeth into the issue of question, but I find that he never really resolves the issue, or maybe I'm, I'm looking for too much clarity. Um, he doesn't actually think about or make it clear where these particular concepts go in terms of giving us some kind of direction, okay? So I find the level of indeterminacy in Francis um, not so much to be troubling, and maybe what he wants is openness, but as an ethicist, my principal concern is to take theology and what I understand our relationship with God to be and flesh it out in patterns of behavior and action, okay? And to that extent, I think that Francis leaves us a little bit wanting, okay? So, if, if I had my wish list, and if I could be Pope for a day, and I would have written a different document. What would it have been? Not as if anybody cares, but this is just me wishing. Right? What would it have been? Number one, prophetic. 
We need a prophetic voice right now in order to stop those trains from running over the top of us, okay? And, and I'm, con I'm convinced that at this point, having seen a number of international agreements that have kind of fallen by the wayside, um, seen national politics that have been really impediments, I think, to, to, to coming up with long-term solutions for global climate change. To a certain extent, I'm not convinced that politics is the best approach to try to counteract the effects of global climate change. Okay? Um, to, that, to that extent, we need a prophetic voice who is willing to make the moral case. Right? When hope seems to be failing, who can rally the troops? It's somebody who makes the moral case for something, right? It might be the Mahatma Gandhi, it might be the Martin Luther King Jr. In this case, it could have been the Pope, actually, if he would have produced a different document. So number one is prophetic. Number two, he needs something short, right? We don't need seminary courses on environmentalism and religious studies, especially when you're addressing all people of goodwill who might be non-Catholics, agnostics, atheists, so on and so forth, okay? Something short, succinct, focused on global climate change. Here's the thing. I know a lot of you are going to resist and probably get mad at this, and, and maybe it's my craving for certainty, but what I would have done is try to identify specifics, right? And I, if, I, if I were writing the document, what I would say is, if you're a Catholic and your carbon footprint is X or more, you're actually living in sin. <laughs> I wish the Pope would have pulled off. And if he happens, here's the thing. I know the Pope's going to be in Philadelphia in a couple weeks, okay? If any of you get an audience with the Pope, give him my card and tell him to call him before he writes the follow-up to Laudato C, okay? Good. Thank you. things to tell the Pope. Um, so we need to uh, take this in context. Uh, first of all, one amazing thing is that the document just exists, right? So that is sort of beyond anything that we say here today, that's the, the biggest single point. Um, and I think a lot of our uh, critiques have to do with what type of document we would like versus what's the tradition in terms of encyclicals. And the Pope obviously is going to work within that tradition, and, and, and maybe in some ways that tradition is limiting. Um, but we kind of expect that it will be within that tradition. Um, in terms of the, the economic angle of looking at this, um, the, I'm going to start with the positive, uh, which is that in terms of the basic principles that are articulated and what appears to be behind the scenes in terms of an understanding of the problems, 
this encyclical, encyclical gets it right. Uh, so the, the, the fundamental problems that we see are essentially a failure to internalize the uh, negative externalities associated with production and consumption. So when people make decisions about production, people make decisions about consumption, those have effects on other people's, they're external to their own decision process, and because of that, they make choices that aren't efficient. Uh, and so that means that there is in part a, a collective action problem at the global level, uh, and th this is pretty well, uh, um, pretty well uh, presented in this encyclical. So in terms of the basic economic problem, it uh, gets it right. And also, in terms of a solution, if we read this very broadly as a call, uh, this, as a call to move this issue higher up uh, the, the policy agenda by catalyzing a grassroots movement, uh, then it's sensible and it is something that I think economists would generally get behind. Um, that said, uh, as academics, we have to be critical, so here I go. Uh, there are some major things, actually, which have been alluded to before, and I guess I'm sort of jumping in on those as well. That the single biggest missing element here is about population growth. Um, the encyclical is completely quiet, silent, on the impact of population growth on the environment. Um, even if we have a non-consumer, vegan, high-efficiency society, when you start throwing billions and billions of extra people into that society, into that, that earth, uh, it's not going to be possible for the natural environment to sustain that. So no matter how well we conform to what the, the encyclical is pushing us toward, population growth is going to continue to be a fundamental problem if not solved. And obviously, what, looking at the church's teachings, you can understand why we are silent on this issue. But that's actually a great pity, because if you look at the economics literature on economic development in poor countries, there are all sorts of things that slow population growth that, have, that, that the church could fully stand behind in every way, shape, and form. So for example, when you educate women, that delays the age of uh, beginning a family, and therefore has a dramatic slowing effect on population growth. And certainly we can all get behind putting more girls in school. Uh, when we think about giving property rights and other legal rights to women, again, that dramatically slows population growth. If we look at development of a financial system in poor countries, that provides an alternative for retirement to having a large family to support you, and again, it slows population growth. If we look at having a well-functioning government, again, that has an effect of slowing population growth. So all of these things are improving health care, improving child survival. That, again, slows population growth because parents are quite certain their child will survive, and so they don't need to have extra children just to make sure that some survive. Uh, so all these are things that the church could easily get behind in a very big way, and that is a real missed opportunity here, because that's, that, that's the core problem here, and the document is completely silent on it, and there was, in, in essence, no reason to be. Um, so that's, and I think I probably have these points here, I should move forward here, all right. So that's uh, the... So that's the one core issue here. Another one... Uh, is that a lot of what the document is advocating is going to result in a drop in aggregate demand by rich countries. So we're all going to scale back our consumerism, and that's going to reduce demand for goods, and this is in some way what the, the document is pushing. But if you think through that, uh, 
at a spiritual and cultural level, there's a lot to be said for this, thinking about the sacrifice necessary to slow or maybe even reverse environmental damage. There's a lot to be said for that. But if we think about the spillover onto poor countries, it's not so clear that this is a good thing. So yes, China has polluted its environment terribly by manufacturing lots of stuff and exporting it to rich countries. But they've also pulled countless people out of poverty in the process. And if we look at every country that has managed to make the jump from poor to middle income in the last 40 years, all of them did that by satisfying demand in rich countries. So if we make that demand disappear, we're eliminating the only channel we know of for moving countries out of poverty. And certainly, this shouldn't be a call to condemn countries to stay in poverty. Um, it's fully consistent uh, fully possible for consumers, instead of demanding things that are going to damage the environment, to demand products made without pollution, without child labor, uh, and using renewable resources. So uh, a different approach to this would be proposing an international or religious organizations to try to promote the uh, change in terms of the type of goods that people are demanding, rather than just say, eliminate demand. Um, and if we do that, that's fully consistent with guarding God's creation without condemning the poor of the world to stay poor forever. So I think, again, that's a missed opportunity, kind of misdirected because of this anti-consumerism. It really should have been about reshaping consumerism rather than being necessarily anti-consumerism. Um, another uh, point I'd like to make is um, concerning the, the sort of approach to technology. Uh, there's a very anti-technology uh, tone in this document. But if we think about uh, continuing population growth, there's going to be, if, if there's going to be an increasing standard of living, uh, we have to find another expression for it. So rather than people who are gaining income wanting a polluting SUV, we need to use technology to develop an alternative for them, whether it be public transportation that's very convenient or whatever that provides a, a, an alternative. Uh, that might be promoting uh, technology in teleconferencing, other technologies that reduce travel, things for pr pr producing, technology for producing energy efficiently, renewable resources, and so on. So instead of being anti-technology and saying technology is a problem, again, it's a question of shaping that technology. Um, if we look at various industries around the world, other than the weapons industry, it's hard to find any area uh, of current scientific advancement that doesn't replace an older, more environmentally damaging uh, technology. So really, the call should have been to young scientists and engineers to devote themselves to shaping the technology rather than being sort of necessarily anti-technology. And finally, uh, elaborating on this point a little bit, if you decide to sit down and read that, for me, at least the document I had was 179 pages of text, um, there's a recurrent nostalgia for a less frenetic past that I guess is supposed to have been less materialistic and better environment. And I don't quite understand where that past was. Um, if it's the 1950s and 60s, which maybe just my filter, that sort of seemed to be what it was, that's getting things very wrong. Um, the environmental quality in terms of air and water, at least in the United States, was much worse during that period of time before the Clean Water Act in the 1970s and so on. And pollution per capita and per unit of output was much higher. Um, 
the key difference between that nostalgic past and now is really just the number of people and the number of people who are not in poverty. And that is what is driving the pollution problem. So if we really are going to be, I'm saying we should not be nostalgic for that past. And I tossed in just a couple of graphs here to give you a sense. Um, so I've forgotten exactly what they are, but you can see what's happened to uh, uh, per capita emissions over the last uh, 100 years. And you can see that it's plateaued on per capita terms, but it's just shooting through the roof in total. And obviously, the difference between those two is population growth. So if you don't address that problem, the top line is just going to keep getting worse. Um, also, if we look at, say, CO2 emissions per capita in the United States, this is what I was talking about, about not being so nostalgic about the past. You can see that it peaks in the 1970s and has come down uh, by today's data to about 1964, right? and maybe is still headed lower. So it's not that we should be so nostalgic about what was going on in the past, but rather recognize what are the core elements of the problem and try to address them. So I think, uh, again, the fact that the document exists at all is great. The core economic understanding is there, but there are many sort of biases built into the document that seem to miss very important opportunities. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Daniel Mark. Uh, I want to thank all the professors who forced so many of you to come here. Uh, this is one really wonderful. Um, and especially thank, uh, thank the organizers uh, who included me in this event, perhaps despite my views, which may or may not have been known when I was invited. Um, but you know, going last, uh, I'm, really, uh, I'm really tempted, there's a very strong temptation to respond to the things that were said. I'm going to resist that, except to say uh, that my colleague and new friend, uh, Mark Graham, has gone so far to the left that he's almost come around to the right. Uh, and so there's actually, you may notice if you listen carefully, a point of disagree, a point of agreement uh, between us. Um, this is Laudato Si. Um, I figured you should see it. Or no trees were harmed in the production uh, of this edition. Um, uh, this is, uh, the, the, there were as many pages as, uh, as the professor said. They're, they're fairly short though. Um, so it is, you can read it uh, uh, next summer or something. Um, and, uh, and, so, uh, and so, I, but I thought as an educator, I thought it was something you should see. Uh, it's not, of course, I, I mean, I joked about you being forced um, uh, to come here, but I don't doubt, of course, that there is great concern uh, for the environment in this room. I'll just point out, I wasn't going to do this, of course, because I couldn't plan this, but I guess I could have anticipated it, is, uh, is the distribution of the resources in this room. You have people in the back who are so virtuous that even with available seats throughout the room, they refuse to consume the resources. And then, of course, the hoarders uh, seated that Pope Francis speaks about so much in the document who have plenty of empty seats next to them, uh, but remain unoccupied for their like carry-on bags or something. Uh, so I know, but I'm, I'm, of course, I'm, I'm just messing with you. But uh, uh, but think about that. Charity starts at home. Uh, I want to begin. Uh, I want to begin with one of the most important and probably one of the most overlooked elements of the encyclical, what I'll call Laudato Si, an allegory. 
What I mean by this is that the core teaching of Laudato Si is not only about the material ecology, but also about the moral ecology. And that's where I get off lecturing all of you on that. Or better said, it is more about the moral ecology than about the material ecology. In a way, we can read Laudato Si as an allegory in which the environmental degradation stands in for the no less pervasive and even more devastating moral degradation of our world. To be sure, it is not really fair to call it an allegory because Pope Francis makes this point quite explicit throughout the text. The central problem identified in Laudato Si is not fundamentally an environmental problem, but a moral and spiritual problem that manifests itself in environmental problems, but hardly in environmental problems alone. This is why the Holy Father is clear that like the environmental problems, the social and cultural problems of our world are symptoms of the same spiritual sickness. There are two key lessons from this very broad but very critical point that lies at the heart of the encyclical. First, we must appreciate the reality and importance of the moral ecology. In our world, which has been so influenced by philosophical materialism or scientism, the idea that nothing exists beyond what is physical or what science can measure, it can be too easy for us to overlook the at first intangible harms of so-called victimless crimes or vices. It can be too easy to miss the moral decay that rots our society from the inside out, just as environmental damage rots our world from the outside in. Just one example, a very prominent example, colossal in the breadth and depth of, the, of its harm, is the poison of pornography, which harms so many people directly and every person indirectly through our pornified culture. Moral pollution is a grave danger, and Laudato Si an allegory is warning us. The second key lesson is that the problem addressed in Laudato Si in its environmental and spiritual dimensions is both global and personal. Understanding the spiritual dimension of the problem helps us to see this. The moral sickness in our, in our society is global, of course, because it is widespread and because it affects everyone. Just as we are all affected by air pollution because we breathe the same air, we are all affected by moral pollution because we all inhabit the same culture that shapes our beliefs and behavior, and increasingly so with globalization. But the problem is also personal because it can only be solved through the conversion of each one of us individually. Just as the anthropogenic changes to the material ecology are nothing but the sum of each of our individual choices about conservation, pollution, uh, about conservation, pollution, and so forth, so too, the moral ecology is the sum of our private virtues and vices. So we cannot solve these problems if we are not prepared to examine and adjust our own choices. And we cannot make better environmental choices until we make better moral choices. Now, all of this points to a tension in the encyclical between two elements, one that represents the shakiest part of the document and one that represents its most profound teaching. The shaky part, about which the encyclical is ambivalent, or perhaps at odds with itself, is the faith in international institutions and global solutions imposed at the level of world governance, what I'll call the Al Gore option. I say, you guys aren't even old enough for that, Jesus. I say, I say, I say, how many people here have seen an inconvenient truth? Okay, there you go. So you kind of want to talk about it. I say it odds with itself because despite the references, Laudato Si itself gives us reasons to be skeptical of such an approach. For example, 
Pope Francis cautions us about the unintended consequences of large-scale environmental schemes. Ecosystems are complex, and it is difficult to predict all of the effects of our interventions. We already know that solar fields and wind fields are very detrimental to their natural surroundings, and the same will be true of devices to harness wave energy, as it is with hydroelectric dams that provide renewable energy but destroy ecosystems downriver. In addition, the encyclical gives us every reason to worry about how global schemes can be designed and managed without the same taint of original sin that corrupts every human project. The people in charge are flawed human beings, just like the, one, just like the ones running the governments and corporations that come in for so much opprobrium in the document. No matter how much we close our eyes and wish it, there is no separate cadre of uniquely virtuous people available to administer a global environmental bureaucracy. This is one of the primary indispensable lessons of Madison and the American experiment, and it is why progressivism is fatally flawed and always fails. Think about Solyndra and the environmentalist fat cats who made half a billion dollars of taxpayer money disappear. Think of the comically and wickedly absurd scene of elites flying private jets to climate summits in Cancun. At least at some point, they finally figured out they shouldn't be arriving one by one in limos to the meetings. The optics aren't good, as we say nowadays. Finally, consider that the world's most European organization, in the political sense, is also the world's most corrupt. I'm talking, of course, about FIFA, though the UN is a not too distant second for corruption and cravenness. The call for global governance, I got a good now, right? Yes. The call for global governance, as I said, is in tension with the encyclical's most profound element. Most profound element. The notion that we must that we must change individually and we must change deeply. A real solution cannot be imposed from above, but must rise up from below. But in order to do this, we need to open our hearts to radical change, or as I said before, to conversion. As the encyclical reminds us over and over, caring about the natural world properly means caring better for each of its inhabitants. The, the poor, the elderly, the disabled, the child in the womb. If we do not protect the embryo, we cannot protect the ocean. We can say we want to, we can even try to, but we cannot succeed because man and the rest of nature share one material ecology, and because the material and moral ecology are in fact one as well. I'm sure you all remember the recent grotesque spectacle of teeth gnashing and garment rending across the West over the death of a lion in Africa that left Africans wondering where the same concern was for dying African children. Big government schemes allow us to feel better without doing much actual good, and usually by asking other people to sacrifice. But Pope Francis tells us that to fix this environmental problem, we have to change our own lives, and we have to do it through meaningful internal reform, rather than through the patronizing and infantilizing measures too often imposed from above. Though the problem is international in scope, it is individual in its roots, and it is with the individual that the solution lies. And speaking of solutions, because we are here in this place, and because they said we have an extra minute if we need it on account of the missing panelists, let me close on a practical note, or better, make one plug for Mother Earth. All the environmentalist hectoring and patting of ourselves on the back doesn't mean much when Tolentine Hall accounts for one quarter of the worldwide rise in temperature this decade. <laughs> 
Similarly, I spent the last few years in an office with a heating and cooling system at war with itself. Instead of bringing the room to a certain temperature and shutting off like a normal system, it heats or cools the room until it reaches the desired temperature, and then it starts heating or cooling in the opposite direction until it triggers the system again, literally using multiple times the amount of energy necessary um, to make, uh, literally using multiple times the amount of energy necessary and making the room less comfortable than a properly working system was. I'm told I've brought this to their attention many times. It's a software problem. I say that when I say to my students that I can't get it. We can put a man on the moon. We can do this too, but we'll see. Finally, let's assume you don't buy my argument, the Holy Father arguments really, about the moral ecology, about the need for a full conversion of the heart, about the problem being fundamentally spiritual and not environmental. And Professor Graham, I know will appreciate this. Ask yourself one question. Do you drink water out of the water cooler in your department office? How many extra steps is it to the water fountain? And it is easier than ever to fill a cup or a bottle with these new fancy space age water fountains that they have. How much planet destroying plastic do we need to create so that you can get water from a cooler instead of from the water fountain? How much fossil fuel needs to be spent so you can get your five gallon jug of water delivered when there is perfectly good water coming from the pipes? Villanova, Jacques Thank you. So thank you so much, Corey. Very interesting. So um, questions or comments that people have. Go ahead. I just had a question for I guess the scientists uh, before they come. Um, so I know that like in terms of like all the environmental changes, I know climate change. I know that the thing was probably the most like discussed and talked about like the thing that like us I would say. Um, but as a scientist who <laughs> multiple, not all the environmental changes. Um, do you think that there are other environmental changes that are just as pressing, if not like more um, pressing than like climate change, for instance, or do you think they're all uh, issues that are very, um, you know? Certainly are all important. I, climate change gets a lot of priority because it underlies a lot of the other resources. The water comes from the precipitation, the plants grow because of the temperature. Um, so the sea level rises because the glaciers are melting. So it's impl it implicates or is involved in many other things going as well. But I think loss of biodiversity due to habitat conversion, uh, due to introduction of species, is probably as large a problem with, with implications ecologically. Uh, Water, both in terms of quantity and quality, um, has some climate change underpinnings, but even if the climate were not to change, uh, rising demand, uh, climate variations uh, are going to put a, a limited resource like water in places like California. I don't think you can blame California's drought on climate change necessarily, it's, uh, but look at the, the size of the problem. So I, I think that the discussion needs to be expanded to a number of these issues in all different parts of the environment um, beyond just the climate. Come on. You're not all that bashful. Yes, go ahead. Um, in the beginning of what I have to see, Pope Francis states that he wants to have a conversation between uh, theology and science. However, his uh, 
the references that he uses are largely social commentary as well as um, commentaries on Catholic thought. Um, I was wondering what your impressions were of that. That's kind of an open question to whoever. <laughs> I, I have a, a sister who's a theologian, and I was actually reading this while visiting her and chafing at exactly what you were talking about. And she claimed that it's just the tradition of encyclicals that this is how they do it. So in other words, don't read anything into it. This is just the format. But uh, other people may have uh, different responses. No, I, I just came up in discussion with a, a priest, so I will, not a priest here, a priest so I will not name. He said, yeah, I read the thing, uh, and, I, and I felt like I was grading an undergraduate paper. Uh, and it turned out that wasn't a compliment also to the encyclical. But, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's right. I think that to expect, not that, not that there isn't uh, valid criticism, actually, but I think to expect too much science is to expect the wrong thing. Um, he's, he's not a scientist. He knows he's not a scientist. And I think he has to stick to the Catholic social thoughts because that's the expertise. I don't mean that's good in the end, but I'm saying it. I think we can explain it. But, I mean, the, the bottom line is that the Pope is the worldwide leader of Catholicism. He's not a scientist, right? And, and typically, when there are ventures of the Catholic hierarchy into the realm of science, it's usually it's usually to validate something that's so obvious that everybody knows it already. So, like in 1996, when Pope John Paul II says, "Hey, Darwin was right. Biological evolution is the best explanation for how we emerged, so on and so forth, and should be considered a fact." And what he's, what he's doing is not weighing in as a scientist, but as somebody who is a theologian and a leader of worldwide Catholicism, saying, hey, the evidence is good enough where we just need to move beyond that at this point. And I think that's what he's doing. He, he's not really trying to have a sustained, energetic discussion of science in terms of whether global climate change is a reality and whether there are anthropogenic causes behind global climate change. Um, I think he simply takes those things for granted. But I think you could also take it as a call to theologians and scientists to engage in conversation. Sure, sure. Right, so that's and, necessary conversation that needs to happen. And, and truth be told, I think one of the most fertile conversations involving theologians and people outside of our discipline is with theology and science right now. And it, it's a whole separate genre that's very sophisticated, and it, it takes you know two or three PhDs to figure out what these folks are saying. So it's really interesting what's happening right now. Yes. I wonder, uh, Dr. Mark, specifically, whether the individual conversion could be encouraged or enabled by a top-down decision. So do you use your... I, think so. I, I actually think so. And, and the person I want to use as an example is Kathleen Kaveny, who is a professor at Boston College. And she actually talks about the law as an educator, right? Um, to get recalcitrant human beings in some way, shape, and form to convert morally. And she uses the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was not enthusiastically received, especially by the business community when it was passed, because it requires so much money to be put into different access ports um, into buildings, so on and so forth. But the bottom line is, is that that's a way to sensitize us to the, the plight of the poor and the unfortunate people who have handicaps and disabilities, right? Um, so, 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 so can we think of Laudato Si and it's called to an individual conversion. And I think, in the end, you're absolutely right. Uh, Pope Francis is very, very skeptical about large national and international organizations and bureaucracies um, having some kind of palpable, demonstrable effect on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And he is really talking to most people in the Western industrialized world to have conversion of heart. 
Can this document do it? I'm, I'm hopeful that it can, absolutely. And I think there, there are many ways to convert people. One, one way is to try to develop a different narrative, a different understanding of who we are, right? And he's certainly trying to do that in different ways. I mean, he's doing it theologically mostly. It's certain, yeah, I think it's possible. Yes? Now that I heard of, you know, you got this critique, so that I have like an academic, um, like I know what I, like academic critiques of let out the CR, which will bias my opinion if I were to read in the future. So how should I approach reading Lodato C now after what you guys decide? Great question. Uh, so I, I can throw one opinion in there, and that is, I have to confess I didn't read it three times. I read it once, and I reread some passages again. And so for all of us, we came in with our own slant. And if you get the opportunity to read it, you can try to look and see whether we, you know, bias our own reading, right? So say, okay, is there, the the critiques that they have, are there actually passages in here that address those that they glossed over because we're looking to make our our big points? Can I respond to your question too? The question was, how should you approach Laudato C, right? My response is you should act because that's what Francis wants you to do. I mean, if you buy the vision of Laudato C, you act, and I would suggest you take a look at uh, section 211, in which Francis is going to give very practical recommendations about things you can do to become more environmentally benign. Absolutely. Uh, for all of you, this is really marked up because it's important. Here's the one place where Francis gets practical. Um, and he might not actually go far enough, but he gives you some illustrations that I think are within the reach of most people. So once again, number 211, I think you get it. I just want to say I've also underlined a lot of things. Yes, go ahead. Um, one of the things I kind of put in on was the kind of paradox between um, the impact of population growth on the environment and the church's position on openness to life and the family. Any thoughts on how that discussion may pop up in the future, and is science proposing any solutions to, to that in line with the church's teachings? I'd like to weigh in. I don't know that I'm going to answer your question directly, so my colleagues can jump in to do the proper answer. Um, the My read of this, it, I think everything that we see out of any organization is a political document. And this was a political document that is pleasing and is the a, a bunch of different <coughs> constituents, and it's the result of a negotiation process that is compromising all sorts of things. And I have trouble believing that very smart people on this didn't understand these the, the issues that we brought up. That you just can't really look at this without thinking of population. And the, the research that I cited that says that there are all sorts of different uh, interventions that are built around economic development that have a very major impact on, on population growth that are perfectly, perfectly consistent with uh, church teachings. I'm sure they were very aware of that. And I, I suspect that it, there was just a decision that this was too messy. We're not going to touch us with a 20-foot pole. We're not going to get one foot into the population issue because then that brings up all the other questions. And I think that's a real pity because so much that we view as beneficial on so many different dimensions could have been push forward, but because of fear of what sort of can of worms it was just completely ignored. 
But again, it doesn't really address the question. So thank you. Anything there's a sentence that has nothing to do with population. It's not really population. I think what he says is the people that he doesn't want people to get focused on overpopulation because he thinks once you get focused on that, you avoid the underlying issues that are much more pressing in his opinion. I wonder, now this, this is fascinating. I hadn't thought about it. It's a really good theory. It sounds quite plausible to me. I wonder if this is, I don't want to jump the bash Francis bandwagon here, but I mean, I already am. But, but, uh, but I wonder if that is indirectly then a consequence of Pope Francis' squeamishness of taking on, uh, the, uh, in a public way, some of the church's teachings on those issues. Right? So that, like, when, to the extent that Pope, want, Pope Francis wants to refocus on uh, having a more public conversation about other issues, if you open the door to the population question, then you have to talk about contraception. And that's what I think. And he doesn't want to talk about contraception. Or right, that's probably too strong. But probably, you know what I mean. Broadly speaking, and so I wonder if, in order to avoid having to have a conversation about the things he's specifically trying to refocus away from, he didn't want to open the door. So, I, I, I tend to think that, that overpopulation as an issue is a non-starter for the Catholic Church, only because of the teaching on artificial contraception. And it's something the Catholic Church—it's non-negotiable at this point, by and large. I don't think they change anytime soon. Okay. Um, I think your strategy of trying to think about different ways in which we can start, you know, reigning in population growth in ways other than you know, disseminating contraceptives, which is clearly a violation of what the Catholic Church has taught, is fantastic because he, he's right. There are many ways in which you can start reducing population, which are t entirely consistent with what the Catholic Church teaches. And so I, I, I just think, as a matter of principle, when engaging the Catholic Church, you have to realize the limitations involved because of past teachings on artificial contraception, whether you like it or not. Can we have a hand question? Uh, I was wondering if anybody would, could point to ways in which the document changed your views um, uh, that you had come into it. says, uh, 
it is, uh, it is clearly, so the, the new way of thinking about it was the connection between the environment and all these other issues that we're more familiar with uh, in Catholic social thought. So it is clearly inconsistent to combat trafficking in endangered species or maybe completely indifferent to human trafficking, unconcerned about the poor, or undertaking to destroy another human being deemed unwanted. This compromises the very meaning of our struggle for the sake of the environment. And uh, then, it, and later it says, there's literally a sentence that everything is connected. I think everything is connected point was driven home for me more deeply than it uh, ever had been before. Good. Go ahead. Um, I know all of the members of the panel read it in their lines, um, but did you find, and it was like more critiquing than anything, but did you find that it left you hopeful at all? I read a good article about it before that was emphasizing precisely how doom-filled uh, it's like, it is not a hopeful. Uh, it's hopeful. It is a hopeful cyclical in the sense that uh, the Christianity is hopeful, right? Uh, so, so there's always Christian hope, and that's beautiful and, and profound and moving. Um, but it, uh, but it's. I feel like it's more written to inspire fear uh, than, uh, than hope. In order to, it's like, like the world is falling apart. Fix it now. Change now. So I had a different take. I was I found it very hopeful, in the sense that it was written, right? So that this isn't a debate that the church had to weigh in on. It wasn't something that was, in some way, threatening the foundation of its membership or somehow politically important in advance to the church. So there wasn't this mandate you have to do this, and yet the church decided to do it anyway. So that alone is hopeful. Now, as you said, what it laid out in it, what's going to happen if we don't change our ways, that's not helpful. But the fact that it got written, I think it's helpful. If I could weigh in on this, um, on, on, in paragraph 19 in, the, in chapter 1, um, he, he points, he says, our goal. So he's got this sentence that starts, our goal. The goal of the entire text is not to amass information or to satisfy curiosity. So already he, he disabuses you that you're going to that this is an educational document in that kind of strict sense of those data there. But rather, to become painfully aware, to dare to turn what is happening to the world into our own personal suffering, and thus to discover what each of us can do about it. So what I said in my opening remarks about making the environment front and center and the environmental, I love that, environmental change as opposed to climate change. I like that, Keith. To, to make environmental change front and center is that we need to make so this is how I read the document. What, what was really powerful to me is the, the message over and over again that we can no longer ignore this. That it has to become personal or nothing will happen. So I like what you said, Dana, too. That it's a and that, personal. Right, and, this, and then it's only hopeful, I think, in the Christian sense. Right? I mean, listen to that. I'm not going to read the whole sentence of that way. To, to dare to turn what is happening to the world into our own personal suffering. Right, right. That line is not, that is Christ. Right, that is our John 3, 14. Everybody knows that one, right? That, that Christ turns what is happening to the world into his personal suffering, and then the rest of the world the disciples of Christ is supposed to do the same. And that's why there's hope. But that's why there's hope. Right. Not because we're not putting the planet in destruction. Right. Mark, we've got somebody behind. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do you think there will be any Talked about a lot more. 
I'm not sure any political solutions will necessarily be come out there, but it will certainly raise the, the visibility of the issues. Well, inter just interesting enough, and I'll get to the, the bishop. I can't remember what bishop it is. One of the bishops in Florida has has put the uh, Senator Rubio and Governor Bush on notice because they're both Catholics. So he's put them on notice that they have to respond to this. And so far, they're just ignoring, ignoring the bishop. But but so I mean, that's an interesting. I can't imagine that a bishop actually did that on the environment. I can see them doing it on abortion, but on environment. Go ahead. That was my point. Oh. It's ironic that the debate that's happening right now, yeah. as we speak, includes multiple candidates who are Catholic, none of whom by a word of And so, you know, there's all, all the people that are buying into that view of the world are, are it's a, a tough mountain to, to pay any attention to. You know, with that in mind, how with politicians and even faith leaders tend to bend Francis's words around to their own um, uh, agendas. Do you think some of the tone of the document, how it was really pointed, was like an effort to get rid of that am ambiguity? So, you know, Francis's words have been misshapen a lot, or people use it to their own agendas. And do you think that some of the tone and it sounds like it has, I haven't read it, admittedly. It sounds like it has a pretty strong voice to it, uh, at least for a scientific document. And is that an effort to um, sort of really pin his message and, and keep people from being able to misconstrue it? So my own opinion as a non-expert on this is, is, I'm afraid, or is no. Um, if you want to make sure that you're not misread or misused, you keep yourself to a very short document. <laughs> and it also wanders off, in my opinion, in a lot of different directions. This a nostalgic tone, this anti-technology uh, tone, is a, in terms of the core message, seems to be a complete wandering. Um, so from that point of view, I don't think this tremendous discipline was applied to make sure that there'd be nothing that somebody could take and misuse. And in fact, part of the reason why Francis' words are used for whatever people want, whatever, is because he is famously uncareful uh, about, about speaking. Now, the way he speaks when he's talking for a on an airplane is different than producing a of course. But, uh, but I mean, this is partly his style, partly his trend. I mean, he's, he's not a person who, went, who was part of the diplomatic corps of the Curia. Um, he's not a person who, even as a, as a cardinal, spent a lot of time uh, in Rome. And people think that for that reason, when this doesn't even have to be a criticism, but just as an observation, um, uh, that he's not, uh, he's not diplomatic in that sense. I mean, in the sense, not in the sense of being nice, in the sense of being very careful and measured with each word he uses and how he uses it. Which again, an interview is not the same thing as an encyclical, but I mean, maybe there would be a reason to think so. Because I, I agree. I would point out, and I and I and I'm as you as you were talking um, when Mark said that the cyclical should have been much shorter. Uh, there's a six-page letter put out by um, Jewish rabbis across the political spectrum that was put out almost the same day, and I can't remember the, the rabbis in Mount Airy. I can't remember his name. Uh, progressive 
uh, rabbi who said, if the Pope's going to talk about this, then we need to talk about this. So, and it's six pages long, and it's hard-hitting. If you want to read prophecy, it's, it reads like the prophet Amos is what it reads like. And um, so it would have been nice for the... I, I agree with you. I think the Pope should have been a little bit more... A little bit briefer and more uh, pointed in his criticisms. 